0: today, it's the differences between the Austrian and Chicago School of Economics. Plus, what's the difference between Keynesian economics and neo keynesian economics? And how neoclassic economists manage to throw their ideas out the window? Plus, Brexit, is it a Russian plot? And WTO rules, are they as bad as Europe's? And if that sounds like a grab bag of questions, well, that's because it is. They've been sent in by a listener. Maybe it could be yours next time. It's the debunking economic Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Okay, so Steve, I like this idea, actually. And we should uh, we should open this up to uh, subscribers uh, so that they can, you know, so they can ask questions. This So Sunil Basu has, uh, has written and has got a whole heap of questions. So I think uh, Ask Steve Anything should be something that we do periodically. Uh, and, you know, throw out those questions, things that you're not sure about. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad because he's asked some questions that, you know, I'd like to ask as well. Now, Sunil Basu, by the way, I'm not sure if it's the same Sunil Basu who's on Twitter, which which means he's the Green Party candidate for Western Super Mayor. I suspect it is, uh, given the questions he's asked. Uh, he only got 3.3% of the votes, I have to say. It, it's a big Tory area. And John Penrose uh, is the uh, is the MP there, married to Baroness Harding, who set up uh, Test and Trace. Uh, not that there's any nepotism going on in the Tory party, of course, whatsoever. And what a terrific job she's doing of Test and Trace in the UK. Now, look, uh, he says, uh, so Sunel's question, uh, and there's a few of them. Uh, I'm trying hard to understand as much as I can, uh, so here's a, a few requests for my enlightenment. What was wrong with Keynes's idea? What's the difference between Keynesian and post-Keynesian? And how did the neoliberals manage to take over the, the whole the whole idea? So uh, well let's start with Keynes's idea. I mean the, the, the big one obviously which is you know which is really relevant right now and I think when people think of Keynesian economics they think of using public money to try and uh, bail us out of of a, a, a downturn so and that's why people are talking Keynes at the moment.
1: That's partly it, uh, and that's certainly what Keynes um, was arguing. But he began from a perspective of saying that the capitalist economy can't be guaranteed to provide full employment, and the basis of that was talking about the instability of investment. And uh, what he what he said there, and this is, is the, if you want to get a head, <coughs> pardon me, if you want to get a handle on Keynes. Um, without having to read the general theory, and in fact, I think you can do it better without reading the general theory than with reading the general theory, read a paper which I think is easily find on the web called The General Theory of Employment. It's 24 pages long. It was written in 1937, one year after the general theory, and Keynes summarized his ideas in that 24 pages and what had happened between when he wrote the general theory and that summary. He really coalesced about what was new in his approach rather than what was going on with the general theory of employment, interest and money itself, the book.
0: Okay, well, you you
1: summarize that 24 pages in one minute then. Why can't we have full employment? Why can't the
0: economy provide for full employment?
1: Because of the instability of investment and because because total demand is the sum of consumption demand and investment demand. Consumption demand is fairly stable because it depends upon current needs. Investment demand is highly unstable because that depends upon people's expectations of future profit, uh, a, a future about which we know so little, to quote, Keynes. So therefore right. you get enormous volatility out of the, uh, out of the investment side and, and Keynes didn't do enough to elaborate the role of the financial sector there. That was one of his failings he admitted to in 37 as well uh, but, but that's the basic idea focusing upon the uncertainty of the future affecting people's willingness to invest and therefore the sum of aggregate demand will be highly volatile, unstable and in that case there's a role for the government to stick and right. step in. okay, makes perfect sense. So what's the difference then between that, if that is Keynesian
0: economics and post-Keynesian economics.
1: Well, let's go back to what people actually think is Keynes, because it's not Keynes at all. It's neoclassical. And this this, this right. is something which, uh, you, again, you have to read the history of economic thought, which I've done in painful detail, um, and to understand what actually happened. But there was – Keynes' book um, – was if you, when, you, when you think when it came out, there was a state of pretty much complete despair amongst economists uh, globally, particularly in America, because they, first of all, didn't see the Great Depression coming. They all thought 1930 was going to be a fabulous year, much the same as the mistakes they made in 2007. Secondly, um, there was a a, a serious decline in the economy, of course, from the beginning of the crisis to its peak. Unemployment in America rose from when they were using how many people are registered for the dole fundamentally, registered as unemployed, went from statistically 0% to 26% between October 1929 and, in, I think, about June 1932. Then it turned around and it fell down to 11%. And over that period, you can see that people are getting more and more confident, and in particular. Americans have got a disease of confidence, as we've all, I hope, realised, and they started American economic advisors, thought it's all behind us, the exogenous shock, whatever it was, is gone, Uh, we can now get back to um, responsible budgeting, and we're going to tell Roosevelt to cut this stupid budget deficit and balance the books of the government, which the government proceeded to do when unemployment rose from 11% to 20% again. Now, that was just before Cain's book arrived in America. So you think at that point, the neoclassicals, which is what they were, were in total despair. What the hell is going on? We don't know. Well, here comes a book which can save us, hence the the status Cain's book got. But they didn't understand it. It was completely outside their way of thinking. There was stuff inside there which was familiar, and that's what they grabbed onto. There was stuff which was completely unfamiliar, and it caused quite a bit of what the hell do we do next confusion. It was a bit like telling a Tolmache astronomer, uh, you know, to do your epicycles with the sun at the centre rather than the uh, the earth. They, right. they but, just don't know what it means. But you said yeah. that, that that he that Keynes was a was a neoliberal in his approach. That seems to be what you were what you were saying. No, before no, you- no, he's not. No, he's, yeah. I was going to say. I mean, he, he, he's,
0: he's the complete opposite, isn't he? So, but, but you, yeah, they latched yeah. on. They latched no, the on K, No,
1: you know, Keynes was Keynes was not Keynes was. He's a complicated character. I, I, I describe him as being bit like watching a snake shedding skin, or a, 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 a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, and you caught him halfway. Uh, it's a mess, okay? And you've got this stuff in Keynes where there's a lot of stuff which is Marshalian and a lot of stuff about uh, marginal analysis as well, combined with stuff which is completely contradictory with that. So uh, that's where there was a mélange, and you could look at Keynes's stuff and and justifiably make a case as Krugman does on quite a few. Occasions occasions. occasions for a very neoclassical interpretation of Keynes, But what actually happened was Hicks, who was sort of his rival, one of his rivals at a different university, wrote a paper called Wages and Profit, the Dynamic Problem, in 1935. And what he was trying to do in that paper was to build a time-based sequential model of the economy. And he had an economy which just produced bread as an output, and it had two inputs, or two classes of inputs, um, bread itself, and then machinery, and he was going to build a model which, if he'd done it, would have been a complete tour de force. Instead, it turned into a tour de farce because what he said was that uh, there were two types of bread being produced, bread you ate today and bread you didn't eat today, which became capital the next day. Now, I don't know how often you've tried to make a, uh, make a, a, a bread kiln out of stale bread, but if you succeed, please let me know. I'll put you in the Guinness Book of Records. It would be a uh, curious thing to say. Yeah, impossible. Yeah. Okay, so in the middle of all that, what he was dealing, dealing, and Hicks explained all this in 1981, 82, in a paper which unfortunately was published in a post-Keynesian journal meaning neo-neoclassical Reddit. But what he did in the middle of that was he's trying to pl- toy with the idea of uh, how do you handle a three-market model of the economy? So you've got money, uh, you've got goods and services, and you've got employment. And mm. he said, if if you take the Volrazium, and this is why it becomes totally neoclassical, Volrass uh, model of capitalism uh, talked about... Um, Having multiple markets for multiple commodities and uh, trying to reach an equilibrium across all those markets at once and the, the rule was and it's, this is just a mathematical logic if you achieved equilibrium in n minus one markets where is a number of markets, then the nth market also had to be in equilibrium okay? so you could drop one of your market you could you choose to drop one of your Markets, or choose that particular market's output as your numeraire for the entire economy. So in that thinking, he, this is what Hicks wrote in the 35 paper. A, 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 as an aside, effectively, in trying to build this sketch of a model which he never really finished, uh, he said, if you have X market and Y market in the equilibrium, then you can ignore Z market. So you can have a, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional model. And that's what the ISLM model is because I this is a and model- That's why we get all those demand and supply graphs that we're taught in... You know, yeah. it's, uh, six form level economics. Well, what actually happened was the supply and demand stuff was all micro, and that was, what was Marshall's responsibility, uh, irresponsibility. Um, Hicks found a way to convert that across to macro, uh, where the IS and the LM curves, respectively, became like the, the demand curve and the supply curve. And yeah. that meant that rather than posting this really unfamiliar Keynesian stuff about expectations, uncertainty in the future, oh, it's supply and demand. And the and, and the, the, the only the only thing which Hicks did that made the model at all interesting was to curve one of the lines. So rather than being a straight line, it was pretty vertical at the far end of the axis when you had high employment and pretty horizontal at the other. And what he then said was if you if the, um, that, if you the demand curve, that was the supply curve for Vecopus, had this sort of um, upside down L on L lying on its back type shape. And he said, and the demand, the demand curve was the the thing which the government could control by changing the money supply. And what he said was, if you're in the the, the lying down on the ground part of the old curve, and you increase the demand, you, then you have no impact upon price level the price is the vertical axis uh, or the interest rate is the vertical axis so you can move when you're in this lying on its backstage if you increase demand uh, by government action you can increase employment without changing the interest rate so that's what he called the Keynesian region and then once you get to the straight- up section of the L, of the L curve pointing vertically uh, at that point you're in the neoclassical world where if you try to boost demand by boosting government spending you'll just make the interest rate go up and you'll have crowding out of public, private, uh, spending no, because, by public. Because you're adjusting the equilibrium. So, I mean, that's the fundamental yeah. difference
0: then, isn't it? I mean, Hicks is there it's saying equilibrium it's e- thinking. equilibrium yeah. thinking, and Keynes was saying, no, there's no such thing as equilibrium, which is why the government needs to uh, step in when uh, when confidence is uh, confidence is falling so there's not investment happening. Does that I mean that? That's so right. the, pretty
1: much, yeah, yeah. So what's the and, difference and then between Keynesian and post-Keynesian then? Well, first of all, post-Keynesian takes on the expectations, the importance of un- an uncertain future, determining how much investment anyone to take. So, Kane, that the post-Keynesians, what what Hicks ignored was that investment is fundamentally a function of, of expectations about the future. For Keynes, he made it a function of the rate of interest. So that's. And and, and that when you make it the function of the rate of interest, you can fine tune the economy. You know, just if there's not enough investment, drop the interest rate. That'll make more projects have a positive net present value. That'll boost investment, and you're back in a you know well functioning economy again. And that's the fine tuning fantasy that took over the neoclassicals from the '50s and '60s. So that's that's the um, the, the distortion that Hicks did. Now, what the post Keynesian is, look, Keynes was talking about uncertain expectations volatility, um, and even when it came to price levels, rather than having a single idea of a price level, Keynes had an idea of two price levels, and, and this became an important part of Keynesian analysis. So you would argue that um, Keynes said that there are goods, the, the standard you know, consumption goods you and I buy, he was willing to say that was determined by, effectively by supply and demand pricing. But He said the price of investment goods, the price you're willing to pay to buy a factory, depends upon your expectations of the future Sales of that factory, so the determinant there is not the um, the cost anymore. It's your expectations of the future, and if you have a, a you know, euphoric expectations about the future, you'll pay hand over fist to buy that you know, that coastal five star hotel or whatever else you're considering as an investment purchase. So, and, and he then said that the, what actually motivates investment is a gap between the. The sale price of of commodities, which tends to be a cost plus thing, and the cost of buying the um, investment goods, which is based on your future expectations, and that gives you enormous volatility. It leads into a role for the finance sector. It leads to Hyman Minsky uh, and those sorts of analyses, and that became post-Keynesian economics. For example, just before the uh, dot-com bomb. Uh, all those dot-com
0: companies that were buying really expensive properties because mm. they thought yeah we uh, you know good times are here so let's have the the, the smartest offices uh, right in the center of town even though they, they were still startups and uh, that ludicrous thinking was built on that
1: expectation that things were, were going to be good so we can spend big that's right. And of course, the point, we're, I mean, not, not a lot of post Keynesians acknowledge this, um, but a large part of what uh, happened as well in post keynesian was bringing in ideas from other people like Irving Fisher. And Irving Fisher had the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions so as his own independent, and I think, frankly, better explanation of the Great Depression than Keynes' explanation. So with that uh, blending, you got this t- time for finance. When you look at Minsky, for example, Minsky's early references make no, the papers make no reference to Keynes. He only read Keynes by accident when he had to referee somebody's paper and he read the 1937 paper and it stunned him how different that was from what he was told on the textbooks. And that was the beginning of him developing his alternative analysis, the financial instability hypothesis. And then you had Schraffer, who was, Piero Schraffer was a a, a a, a genius Italian, uh, rather reclusive, mathematically oriented, but not mathematically trained logician. And he developed a range of logical critiques of Classical economics before Keynes was even willing to countenance them. So, in 26, Straffer published a paper uh, of The Law of Returns Under Competitive Conditions, which established logically that most firms should face constant or falling marginal cost, and therefore your cost system had to be different to what Marshall was arguing for. Keynes couldn't bring himself to swallow that stuff. But when you look at how the post-Keynesians came together, all these ideas got blended. And the overall label of Keynes is, to, to a sub, sub, substantial degree, more the popularity and awareness people have of Keynes than what they have of, uh, of Sharafa or Fisher. So the, why though
0: was Keynes in in the mainstream why was he accepted i guess it's because we did we were facing a recession a, a depression so uh, as you said uh, you know people looked for anything to to get them out of it yeah but why why did that idea go away was that simply because the neoliberals thought well no we can you know, we don't need fiscal stimulus. We don't need money pushed from the government. We can do, we can do all of this through monetarist means. We can we can. No, do that, 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 that took
1: that took longer. I mean, uh, right. if you if you go back to the, the early fifties, you were talking about how, it's, you know it's all it's all a factor of the interest rate is balancing things out, which is yeah, but you, you, you know, you, which obviously yeah, you, but you also had an early belief that you had to have fiscal policy because when you drew the ISLM model, um, the uh, the, the liquidity money thing was, uh, was the equivalent of the supply curve and that was the kinky one. Uh, the the one they draw as a sort of downward sloping straight line was the IS curve and that's related to the demand curve. And then the argument is you could boost that by by government spending. Uh, if there was too low a level of demand You and you yourself in what Hicks called the Keynesian region of the diagram uh, where boosting demand by extra government spending did not increase the interest rate and therefore didn't crowd out the private sector. Um, so The the, the theory, the early stuff, which was um, the main popularizer of this, wasn't Hicks, it was Samuelson. But with this analysis, also what's called the aggregate supply aggregate demand analysis, it all argued in favor of fiscal policy. Now, the, the shift to get rid of that. Uh, began under, under under Friedman. But that's where you got the true, absolutely purist, neoclassical stuff coming back in again. And the way that Friedman put portrayed the idea of the government trying to modify the level of demand to uh, increase employment was as if the economy is already at equilibrium with full employment and the government's trying to arrive at the employment level even higher. And then that, of course, really basically assumes... You know the Keynesian region doesn 't exist, or we 're not there anyway, and the government 's trying to push the economy to a high level of performance then it would actually reach at equilibrium rather than getting it from below to within reach of equilibrium so that that's a, it, was a, it was a long and steady demolition process, and what it really involved was going back to micro and that 's uh, the stuff that you didn 't find much of in Keynes. I don't think you should find any of it in economics, but that's what took over economics and got us back to where we are now. No, you should uh, You should use it if you're running a company, but that's about it. But imagine you are... No, not even that. Run a company into the ground if you follow neoclassical micro. It's <laughs> bullshit. Sorry. Imagine you are Milton Friedman then. Uh, just oh, just, just for a second, <laughs> put yourself
0: put yourself in his shoes, and explain mm-hmm. to me as he would why Britain went through years of of austerity. The, this belief that you need to feel the hurt to get a, an economy to recover so you need to cut government spending uh, and uh, you 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 need to cut cut debt and get the books back into a balance i mean even rishi sunak now is you know even though we're mm. <laughs> we're going through this global pandemic you know you've got the uk chancellor talking about balancing the books uh, mm. uh,
1: explain to me why they see that as being so important okay that comes out of the exp- the expectation that's that freeman developed for inflation and this this is the famous helicopter paper model and the one thing uh, he did have any merit, in my opinion, is is legitimising the use the word helicopter money. But apart from that, nothing. But he, that that was his model of the of the, 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 the the idea of, an, of a of a government controlling the money supply is something outside the economy. So this helicopter flying over this mythical country uh, is the is the government creating money. And what he argued was that if you have $1,001 um, $1 notes in the uh, in the economy, and it's running at long-run general equilibrium. So everybody, uh, everybody wants a job, has got a job at the going wage rate. Uh, all goods and services, every supply equals demand in all markets, and and everybody be doing their shopping using these pieces of paper marked "this is one and they carry a certain amount of that money in their pay, in their pockets. And by carrying in their pockets, they're actually concurring a loss because they'd be better off in one sense spending it but they've got to m- maintain keep keep a, like one twelfth of it for for consumption so there's a there's a utility loss in hanging onto the money rather than spending it so what he then said is the, if the helicopter flies over and drops another 1,000 notes out of the tel- helicopter then that will cause everybody first of all to think oh it's twice as much demand as I thought there was I've got to produce more hire more workers blah 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 and workers demand wage rises yada 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 and what you find finally get is you, uh, you get an initial boost in demand out of the money dropping. And then as people go through all the utility and cost adjustments involved, ultimately you double the price level. Um, and you get back to exactly the same equilibrium again. So that's his one off. And then when you said, is imagine a continuous stream of helicopters doing this, then what would people, people come to expect these helicopters to be dropping money out of the sky. And therefore, if, they, if, they, if they're tipping it at such a rate that the money supply is growing by 10% per annum, people become, come to expect inflation of 10% per annum every year and because of that they put their prices up by 10% every year without even being involved in any sale or or there's no there's no it's just expectations so the converse argument to that
0: then is if you don't fly those helicopters and actually pulling money out of the economy then you would expect that inflation is going to go down you keep inflation under control which would be the yeah and and that was the advice so
1: having had this period of Mm -hmm. too much uh, too many helicopters you turn on the furnaces instead and destroy the money and reduce the expectations over time and by the Curious way because that's, uh, that's the f- f- argument i don't remember I,
0: uh, seeing runaway inflation in the last decade well as 30 years no
1: in the last four decades yeah. i mean the, the neoclassicals not that they are not they're going to fight the last war there's only one war they want to fight and that's against inflation mm. uh, because that's the you know, the price system out of control we can blame that on the government it's all the government's fault yada 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 yeah so look uh, there are a lot of people though still saying
0: you know Keynes doesn't you know they, they, even now When when we've all accepted, the government has had to step in because this money is not going to come from anywhere else. So The Spectator, looking back at this is a few years ago, but James Bartholomew, Mm. a a prominent writer in The Spectator in 2016, pointing out, you know, his argument is uh, Keynesian economics just doesn't work. During the the Clinton presidency, spending was cut on both defence and welfare. According to the Keynesians, the cutting of the structural budget deficit should have depressed the economy, but the very opposite happened it boomed output moved from being three percent below the trend to one and a half percent above and in late 2012 Keynesians got very distressed about the the fiscal cliff this was the moment when taxes were increased and the government spending reduced Keynesians foresaw doom and gloom instead growth accelerated in the following year and that you we hear that argument don't we that, that mm. the, the opposite you know which is what we've just been talking about that uh, you know if you if you have austerity You're going to get somehow, miraculously, although no one's actually explained why to me very well, you are going to get growth coming through, other than that inflation argument. Is there anything else other than that inflation argument, which would say, cut back on government spending, have a smaller government? Uh, good times around the corner.
1: Oh, this is a massive stuff. And, and so long as you're willing to blow your brains out, it makes perfect sense. Um, th- things like what's called Ricardian equivalence uh, invented yeah. by a guy called Robert Barrow. And this says that uh, he, he actually made the argument that uh, the government must maintain a balance, a budget, balance budget over the infinite horizon. Um, so if you have a deficit now, that must be followed by a surplus in the future. And therefore, if you run a deficit now, private individuals... Know this, of course. This is the, 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 the idea of knowledge of the future is an essential part of neoclassical thinking. Though they won't bloody well admit it unless they slip up. Um, and I've had a couple of slips. i happy to talk, happy to mention them, including the author of the slip up. But anyway, that, that this idea that you know that the future, there's a deficit now. There's got to be a, a surplus in the future. So you save money out of your a private day. to be able to pay those future taxes. Now, mm. people came back to me and said, I mean, anybody swallowing So this, this should be a point to say, um, excuse me, mate, the padded cells are that way. You know, you're in the wrong building. Mm. Um, uh, but instead, they take this crap seriously. And then someone says, oh, yes, but what about what about if people expect those taxes to be levied after they've died? Well, this is where the idea of Ricardian equivalence comes in, because then uh, says, this argument will fail. And this is classic. I mean, I love this because it's so fucking stupid. Pardon any young kids listening there. Um, um, mm. th- 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 he said that if... The argument, argument that the people will not save because they expect the taxes to be levied after their lifetime fails if people are currently giving to future generations through and wait for this word, altruism can you imagine, neoclassical economists using altruism as an argument to undermine a critique of neoclassical economics? That's exactly what he did. Altru- altruistically, they're putting aside money so that their great, great grandchildren can pay the taxes they expect to be levied in five hundred years' time. That is such total garbage. Wow. But that's the sort of thing used. But you hear it a great deal from neoclassic economists hmm. that
0: uh, you know, we, for example, if we're spending up big now, then uh, then this will all have to be paid for by our grandkids. Therefore, what we're, what we're doing now is bad
1: for future generations. <laughs> so they, they do say they are using the altruistic argument all the time. Oh, we're worried about our grandkids so much. Yeah, yeah. Not our grandparents, of course. They can die in a hail home. with COVID, but yeah, we're worried about our grandkids. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Okay. The difference. Another
0: question comes: <laughs> the difference between the Austrian and Chicago schools. Well, the Chicago school is very much free market economics, isn't it? The, you know, the best allocation of resources and all that. Pretty much what we've been talking about. So, how does the Austrian school differ from that?
1: Well, the fundamental things that differ. With it, they've got exactly the same theory of values. They start from marginal utility uh, for the uh, for the consumer, marginal cost for the for the uh, producer. They envisage rising marginal cost and falling marginal utility, and all the balancing effects of the market economy. But they make the point: and this is the we, there are some valid points in the Austrians that markets are not an equilibrium. In fact, the advantage for entrepreneurs, and this is a, a character that plays a far larger role in Austrian thinking than the neoclassical. thinking. Thinking. The role for an entrepreneur is to perceive that there is an advantage to be exploited uh, between a, a gap between what the market is currently providing and what people need or a point where there's going greater supply or uh, than demand for some products or less supply than d- demand for others and to take advantage of that and make a profit. And the, actually in some ways, even though he's so this not… This is like utility, the utility value, isn't it? Really yeah, it's, but, it's, but, some, but what's going on is they're saying there's a disequilibrium and the exploitation yeah. of the disequilibrium is what enables the system to press and that's not that's right. not a bad way that's that's a reasonable piece of logic in its own its own right but doesn't a lot of that gets down to the this, this idea of utility though that that what
0: what i see something being worth is different to what you see as something being worth and and therefore if i'm putting a greater value on something then that's an, an opportunity for you to exploit if i'm stupid enough to buy a a, a, a new phone for example that uh that folds out in a, in a different way then, and I'm, I'm prepared to pay twice as much than you are for that, and it,
1: it Cost the same amount to produce as a normal phone. That's an opportunity. That's there? the sort of thing. Yeah, but it's. I mean, the, the best person, even though he's not strictly an Austrian, he is Austrian by birth and Austrian by economic analysis, is Joseph Schumpeter. And anybody who's you know, serious in economics hasn't read it yet. I highly recommend reading Schumpeter's Theory of Economic Development. It's a very readable book. It's only 150 pages, I think. And he explains how uh, how you can in, in the what he sees as the Valuation Vision the neo Classical, uh, and that's Chicago school fundamentally, uh, vision of a system in equilibrium. He then says, in that world, there's no profit. Okay, if you if you imagine yourself having to pay. Uh, wages, the, the, the actual marginal cost of wages to buy higher workers and the marginal cost of capital to rent machinery, um, then if you're in equilibrium, those two are equal to the revenue you get and there's no profit. So he said, how do you create a profit? There has to be a disequilibrium. And he goes through six different instances where there's a disequilibrium you can exploit. Now one, of course, is uh, productivity change. So he gives the example of, of if you uh, invent a machine that enables one, worker to produce the output of six, and that's the case like with the original spinning Jenny, uh, then so long as the machine itself and its maintenance and parts and energy costs are less than five times uh, the cost of a worker. Then you can make a profit, and make an advantage, and that's a discontinuous change. So that that's the sophisticated side of the Austrians. Uh, the the simplistic side is they've got a, basically a gold vision of money, and uh, and they blame fractional reserve banking for all the economic woes, which would be really really terrible, really really great idea if fractional reserve banking actually existed. Yeah. Um, so and so also, so since we don't have yeah. the gold standard, mm-hmm. does that mean that schools like the Austrian school are just worthless now because
0: none of it applies? Well,
1: they never they, on that front, they've, never, they've got no clue about money. I mean, this is... This is I mean, people are realising... Apart from not having a clue about money, they've got economics nailed. Is that what we're saying? What have the Austrians done for us? Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's... There, there is some merit they, they focus more upon uncertainty and there's people like Shackle who's sort of a, on, the, on the border of Austria who's done a lot of good work about what, what uncertainty actually means versus risk um, so there's some useful contributions in some of the Austrians but they still believe we're very close to equilibrium and they have no idea of the accumulation of debt right. and that's one thing I've, that leaves so, them out so, of uh, so yeah. a two
0: sentence answer then the difference between those two, two schools sentences? yeah that's right they can be. I know, but your sentence is gone forever of course uh, it's like when you're talking about an economics textbook. You say it's only 150 pages. I was thinking at the time, that's like 10,000 pages in normal books. <laughs> uh, but um, the different two-sentence answers to the difference between the Austrian school and the Chicago school.
1: Okay. Uh, the, uh, Austrians in, in emphasize equilibrium doesn't apply. Uh, it's an ideal which never occurs. So that gives you an opportunity for profit. And they focus upon uncertainty in a way that the Chicago School ignores. Right, and the Chicago
0: School is very much about equilibrium. And this is this is Mil- yeah. Milton Friedman's heart, heartland, isn't it? Basically, indeed, yeah. So, so all of that is the idea of you know limiting the um, the, the value of money, control of the, the the value of money, supply of money is determining the value yep. of money, and all that yep. sort of stuff. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the other questions he's asking um, are um, okay, which is just we'll get through these quickly. Yeah, sure. Okay. Nothing to do with the hard economic theory we've been going through. and We're running out of time. Yep. Yeah. Brexit, do you think the hard Brexit programme, I know your answer to this one probably, do you think the hard Brexit programme is sponsored by oligarchs hoping to avoid EU taxation rules affecting the city of London? So this is the fact that uh, we know Russians and Ukrainians have been buying up London property for some Mm. time, you know, hoping that those assets are going to be hidden from international sanctions. I think, before you have a go at this, the answer is, is, well, maybe, but probably not, because, you know, the EU has supposedly been freezing and confiscating assets, uh, that have been obtained through crime since 2014, mm. and uh, it's clearly not working because London would have been included in that. Uh, so I don't know whether the EU is uh, I- intending to ramp it up anymore, But um, yeah, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? I mean, I don't think it's
1: unlikely. I mean, I think I think it's probably also true that you've, you've got more um, money laundering and blind eye stuff in London than you have in, in Europe. Mm. Okay. Except in, in Switzerland, the old gnomes of Switzerland. Um, um, so there's probably fraud is a better business pl- plan in, in the UK than it is in Europe, but not much better. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, it's gonna, not going to change whether we're in or out of oh. the EU. Well, there oh. was
0: uh, that, that Russia report, wasn't there, with the, uh, the Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee put together and uh, you know, it didn't want to be released. Uh, Boris Johnson tried to stop it being deleted, it was delayed by about nine months. Mm. And uh, it, it just said, yes, it was a possibility that when it came to the Brexit vote, Moscow-based information operations might have influenced it through social media and perhaps through uh, Sputnik and RT and places like that. Uh, so our friend who's a, 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 a Brexiteer, George Galloway on RT. Ah, yes, George, um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Not a significant factor. Mm. Okay, his other question. Um, Naomi Klein's, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She wrote a book, This Changes Everything, She, uh, which is largely about climate change, mm-hmm. actually. It's um, it's subtitled Capitalism Versus the Climate. So there, are. I've read The Front Trade. <laughs> and That's all I've read of her book. Uh, but uh, he says she describes how the World Trade Organization prevents countries from subsidizing investments. Even after a no-deal Brexit, won't Britain be controlled by these regulations? Regulations that are happening underneath EU competition rules? I think the answer to that is you betcha,
1: isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is one of the main shifts which has occurred in trade negotiations over the last 30 or 40 years. Corporations, first of all, given the same rights as human beings, so you can offend, you know, I mean, you can't you know, blaspheme against a corporation, but it's something similar. And they can actually say that they, they, they can campaign against a government regulation if it jeopardises their business model, for example, yeah. if you and put i uh, we've bam, seen bam. it with Airbus and we've seen it with Boeing. So yeah, and, world... and cigarettes too, frankly. So, you know, yeah. it's an appalling bloody thing. It, it, it constrains government behaviour. But, of course, this is all a part of the new neoliberal agenda. Uh, the less government does, the better. So if corporations stop governments passing rules that affect corporations, great. So, yeah, uh, we'd still have a couple, a couple of those restrictions in there. One thing I'd, I'd love to see wound back. But what I loved was the fact that the World Trade
0: Organisation ruled that the EU had broken the rules by subsidising Airbus. And so the U.S. could impose tariffs in retaliation on EU goods in response to that. And then the EU mm. said, hang on a second, you're subsidizing Boeing. And the World Trade Organization said, oh, yeah, they are too. So uh, you can impose uh, tariffs against the U.S. Uh, in retaliation for the subsidies that they're giving. Uh, so it's all a bit of a nonsense. Isn't it, really, when you look. it is a nonsense. But they've got quite intricate rules on it all. And it's very similar. I mean, his point, you know, once we... And we argued, you know, we had that discussion a few weeks back about whether, uh, you know, because the, the, uh, it's holding up the uh, getting a Brexit deal, this idea of the, the, the level playing field. And I think uh, hmm. he's right to point out, but it, it applies anyway with the World Trade Organization. And in fact, in the World Trade Organization, it's almost exactly the same regulations as sit uh, with, within the EU and uh, that, you know, you can't, yeah, that's true. You can't subsidize uh, industries if it's going to disadvantage another industry or another or another company so for another country in another country so uniformly low corporate tax is okay but lowering it for a select set of companies is not permissible but you can do it if it's there to correct regional imbalances or provide seed funding for early stage technologies so Mm. but then Mm. you don't have old stage company technologies saying well they're subsidizing early stage technologies and that's that's stopping us from uh, sweating our assets for as long as we as long as we want. So, yeah, all of th- and then all of this goes to a WTO board that determines the the outcome through all of this, which is a bit like, you know, the uh, European courts. It's exactly the same. So we're leaving the EU to to be part of a trade body that actually behaves in exactly the same way. Potentially. yeah, Nothing achieved. All right. Very mm. good. Well, there we are. Mm. Let's ask Steve. And we should do more of yeah, those that. Good, yeah, it was good, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. So yeah. thank you, yeah. Simhal, uh, Basu, for that. And uh, yeah, if you've got other questions like, like that, for maybe four or five questions, which we can nut our way through in half an hour or so, then, uh, then send them in. It's good to talk, Steve. Catch you soon. Welcome. Okay, good. Yep. And next time, Michael uh, Hudson is going to join us, and we're going to ask the question, is the time right now for a debt jubilee? Everyone in the world is racked in debt. Worse than it was a year ago. Is this the time we just write it all off? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keene and Phil Dobby. See you next week.